Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm your host, D.P. Lyle. Today I want to talk about ancient Egyptian medicine. This is relevant to any of you who write historical fiction, uh, crime fiction, and uh, this, of course, uh, is about as ancient as you can get. This stems from a question I received from a writer a few years ago, and this question actually appeared in the uh, monthly newsletter of Mystery Writers of America called The March of Crime, and where I have a, uh, an ongoing series of articles there. So someone asked this question, and it's, uh, I think it's a fun question with some fun answers. What are the most common medicinal herbs available in Egypt around 80 A.D.? I am particularly interested in wound healing, protection, and pain relief medications, preferably topically applied and acceptable in both humans and animals. Wow, that's a great question. Um, and it goes way back into the annals of medicine. Um, as with most ancient civilizations, uh, Egyptian medicine and Greek medicine and European medicine and Asian medicine, if you go as far back as you want to go, it was pretty much the same and there wasn't much to it. In fact, if you look through the history of medicine, only in the last 100 to 150 years has there really been any real medicine. The rest of it's been hocus-pocus, uh, wrapped in religion, wrapped in rituals, and uh, most of it didn't work, but some of it surprisingly did. So, in ancient Egypt, the, the practice of medicine uh, was a combination of spiritual beliefs and social conventions, and then what we call empiric observations, which actually is very important, not only then, but now. What do we mean by an empiric observation? It means that you do something, you see the result, and you say, huh, I wonder if that worked. And then when you see it over and over and over again, and it does work, then you can empirically say that is a treatment. And that's kind of what it is. It's trial and error. And most of um, ancient medicine was exactly that way. There wasn't the scientific method, really, until uh, Coke came along and did that with infectious processes. That It wasn't really defined, so they didn't have really testing. It's just that people did stuff. They observed it, and they wrote about it, and then it was passed down from generation to generation, usually in a, what's called a materia medica, which literally means the materials of medicine. And every civilization has one of those, and the Egyptians are no different. So they were wrapped in, in like I said, spiritual beliefs and rituals and stuff like that. They also had a strong belief in astrology, which probably came to them from uh, the ancient Babylonians, and that probably filtered on down into the Egyptian uh, culture that we know as ancient Egypt. So you got astrology, you've got all of these things going on. So what did they do? What exactly could they do? Uh, you know, they didn't have operating rooms and surgeries and ICUs and all that stuff. They didn't really know any medicine whatsoever as compared to today's standards. And so what exactly were they capable of doing? Mostly they reached out to the animal world to get plant and animal products that they used to create potions and oils and salves and ointments 
and uh, this is this is common because they took what was available. They also added minerals that they found. They even crushed up uh, shells and lapis lazuli to add to some of these potions and these these salves and creams that they created. So they took what was available and experimented with it. Um, they were applied with often with great ceremony. And this was important because it was designed to appease an angry God or to attract a healing God to help make the person better. This takes us back to Imhotep. Imhotep is the Egyptian god of medicine. And he's a god, but he also was a real person. He was a visor under King Zoser, who was part of the third dynasty, and that was around 2980 B.C. And he was a gifted healer, Imhotep was. And he was later deified as the god of Egyptian medicine. So a lot of these incantations and ceremonies were to appease him and to to plead to him to help make this person better. How do we know this? How do we know what the ancient Egyptians did? I mean, obviously we have hieroglyphics and all of that stuff, but there were also some very important papyri that were found. Um, these are documents that were written uh, on papyrus, and they were found preserved in some of the tombs, and uh, they tend to be named after the person who discovered them. And the most important ones are the Cahoon Papyrus, which uh, was discovered around 1850 B.C., the Edwin Smith Papyrus, 1600 B.C., and the Ebers Papyrus, 1550 B.C. And then uh, uh, there, were, there were others, of course. Several of the sections of these documents deal with various medical and surgical issues. Uh, the Ebers papyrus, for example, had to seven to eight hundred medical formulas. In other words, it showed people how to make these potions and salves and creams and what to do with them. So it was basically the medical textbook of the day. You know, all of us that went to medical school probably probably read Harrison's textbook. I knew Dr. Harrison well. I trained with him in Birmingham. And so every medical student uses Harrison's book. And it, it, it basically lays out what we know about medicine at this point in time and to help students and physicians, you know, learn and get better at what they do. Well, these, these papyruses pretty much did the same thing as did the Materia Medica so that everyone kind of had a playbook. They could refer to that and decide how to treat various illnesses and injuries that occurred during that time period. Now, I should point out that the, that the illnesses and injuries that they had were pretty similar to what we have now. Obviously, they didn't have car accidents, but they had accidents. People fell down and broke bones and scraped themselves and got infections and, you know, had gallbladder disease and got cancer and had heart attacks. And all those things went on back then. They just had no physiological physiological understanding of them, but they did have rituals and, 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 and materia medica to treat them, or at least they thought they did. So a, a lot of things were, were used by them. They thought mirror and frankincense and mana would help heal wounds and other illnesses. They used antimony 
antimony and copper and other metals and they'd mix those with herbs and, and other things that they found usually from the plant and animal war world and they helped with wound healing and there may be some truth to this these metals may be antibacterial in property it, it, it have antibacterial properties and therefore they actually help the wound heal by not allowing a secondary infection to come in and remember secondary infections are huge they will they wound infections killed millions and millions and millions of people and it was only in the antibiotic area which happened in the 20th century uh that we had a way of dealing with it otherwise it was you know a prayer and hope they also took animal organs like uh, pig's brains and spleens and, and animal fat and mixed all these things together to create these salves and ointments, again, using what, what, they, what they had available. They used honey. They, like I said, they used tortoise shells that they would crush up and lapis lazuli. Uh, th they thought they used purgatives. Now, purgative is something that cleans out your system. And these are plant extracts. And they came from senna and colocynth and castor oil. Lo and behold, we use similar things today. They thought garlic and onion and opium and cannabis and hellbore and even animal excrement. In fact, crocodile dung, dung was felt to have special powers. Now, that obviously wouldn't help with wound healing because that would actually introduce all the agents needed for a horrible infection. But, again, they tried it. They used what they had available. Now, they would make poultices and ointments and bandages, and, and they compacted a lot of these things into pills that were given orally. Uh, they mixed them in liquids, and they had them for gargles and for swallowing and for bathing. They even had suppositories. Some of these things were heated and used to fumigate the area so the person would boil or burn something and inhale the vapors. Uh, you know, we do that today with, you know, if you look at the asthmatic inhalers, we're basically creating a fumigant of a medication that enters into the lungs and helps treat something. Interesting, huh? These guys weren't stupid. I mean, they didn't create such a great civilization by wandering around in the desert and not knowing what they were doing. The problem was is that they had no foundation of knowledge on which to build this. They had did not have the tools. They did not have microscopes and stethoscopes. And they did not have surgical instruments, really. They had a few. They did not have access to the anatomy and the physiology, uh, the pathology that we do now. And so they did the best that they could. And so they used all of these things. And that kind of answers the question that was asked in the beginning. What could they do about illnesses and wounds? They did what they thought was best, what their elders said worked, what their empirical observations said worked, but it doesn't mean that it actually worked. Sometimes it did. They used aloe vera. Now, aloe vera, you know, we still use today, and it's touted if you put it on a burn or a sunburn or something, and how many sunburn creams do you see have aloe vera? How many skin creams and, and hand creams do you see have aloe vera in it? Uh, people even take the cactus and rub the juice on, on blisters and wounds, and guess what? It works. It actually does seem to help with burns and with healing, 
uh, of dry and, and cracked skin and stuff like this. The Egyptians call it the plant of immortality. And they also used it in their embalmings, and they put it on wounds, and they, 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 they used it to treat all kinds of things. And so consequently, this was something that actually helped. They also used black pepper. That was used in embalming. Most of these things were also used in embalming because, remember, they, they treated the person that has passed as really still being alive. They're going on to their next life. And so they treated them uh, in the embalming rituals pretty much the way they would treat someone who was going to survive their illness. So black pepper was mixed with various oils and was applied to wounds and also supposedly helped with arthritis. And yes, they had arthritis. They did live long enough to get it. Many of the people did, though the, the, the life expectancy was half what it is now. There were still a considerable number of people that, uh, that, that lived in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Remember, the life expectancy is overall, and in these ancient civilizations where you see a life expectancy of 35 or 40 years, remember a huge number of, of children die in the first year of life, and that skews the data. But if someone even then made it to 30 years old, the chance of them make it to 50, 60, 70 was pretty good. So, so yes, <coughs> they had arthritis. They used cannabis, and they used it to treat pain. Don't we do the same thing right now? You see all these uh, these these marijuana stores now, and and the the oils and the vapors and and all the things that that people use now. It does seem to help with discomfort, and so they figured that out, and they used it for arthritis and for gout. <laughs> Interestingly, they also felt that it helped cataracts. I don't think there's any evidence that it did that, but. Uh, there, most often this was ingested. They added it to foods or made a tea out of it. Those were the most common. But it was also added to uh, liquid and, and salves to make an ointment for topical applications. So cannabis was used. They used garlic. They, they had a strong belief in garlic. They felt that it, it, it helped with an unsettled stomach. And it also made the heart stronger. Uh, and that it would increase strength and endurance. It kept vampires away, too, so there is that. But uh, there is evidence that garlic is good for the heart, so they assumed that. It's interesting that one of the things they used most commonly was honey, and it was applied to wounds to help with healing and to prevent infections. Now, obviously, they didn't really know what an infection was. They just know that when a wound developed pus and started draining green and, and brown and black stuff that this was not good and they they didn't have to know the the infectious disease world to know that they just knew again empiric observation when that happens something bad will follow and so they would apply honey to these and interestingly honey has antimicrobial activity and so they were actually putting an antibiotic ointment on the wound again pretty clever they used peppermint and they thought peppermint settled the stomach. Well, don't we use peppermint and, and Pepto-Bismol and stuff like that? It was also used to treat a cough. You know, we have Vicks VapoRub now. <laughs> Whether it does any good or not, I don't know. But um, peppermint would, would be used for that. It also, again, was used in healing wounds and bruises and whatnot. And this was usually brewed as a tea. Uh, or the extract was applied directly to to uh, wounds. They used sage. 
Sage, was, they believed, helped improve fertility. And, and they said when, it applied, when they applied it directly to a bleeding wound, it would stop bleeding. Well, there's probably chemicals in there that will do that. That's not something we do today. But we do have topical things that help prevent bleeding. So at the end of the day, back to the original question, was what herbs and spices and stuff did they have in ancient Egypt that would, that would help with wound healing and pain relief and all of that? And I think you can see that they had quite a few quivers, uh, quite a few arrows in their quiver. They could do quite a few things. Some of them make absolutely no sense, but some of them were brilliant, and, and they did work. And they understood this, again, by using what was available, applying it, and seeing what happens, the empiric observation. So most of their medicine was empiricism. They did it. They observed it. They wrote about it. They passed it on to the next generation. And these things got fine-tuned. It hasn't changed in all these millennia, in the last 3,000 years or more, it hasn't changed to the way we do things today. We still think something might work. We create whatever that something is. Often it does come from the plant world. Things like, you know, digitalis and quinidine and aspirin and all these things come from the plant world. Of course, um, all the narcotic drugs that, that are used in medicine come from the plant world. At least that's how they start. Or they're synthesized or semi-synthesized, meaning you start with a plant thing and, and, and create a hybrid of it by adding chemicals to it. But at the end of the day, we come up with an idea that this might work. And then we apply it to a test. We get subjects, we, we test the thing, we have a question we want to answer, we look at what that answer is, and we observe. And at the end of the day, empiricism rules. And so the ancient Egyptians did that. So, if you are writing uh, crime fiction that has to do with the ancient times, and most of this stuff, even though we're talking about Egyptians here, would also apply to the Romans and the Greeks and the Babylonians and, and the other ancient civilizations because they all pretty much did the same thing. They all pretty much had the same things available. There may be variations in plants and animals available, but they still would have done the same thing. They would have tried it and see what happens, and then they would have written about it or verbally passed it on and it would have gone generation to generation, and they would have created their own medical system. So, if you're writing about this time, I hope this helps some. So, until next time, uh, this is D.P. Lyle, and I appreciate you listening in.